from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. This is a special episode of Post Reports. I am Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 9th. Today, how the Post obtained hundreds of secret records assessing the failures of the war in Afghanistan. The war in Afghanistan is now entering its 19th year, making it the longest-running war in U.S. history. I covered the Pentagon for several years as a beat reporter. That is Craig Whitlock. And I was a foreign correspondent before that. I would go to Afghanistan sometimes. And one thing you would always hear commanding generals say is, we're making progress or we're turning the corner. The past eight months have seen important but hard-fought progress in Afghanistan. Since I spoke to you almost 16 months ago, we have made much progress. 2011 was a real turning point. But we are at a crucial turning point. I think it's possible that by the end of this year, we will have turned a corner. This would happen month after month, year after year. Now, last night, I gave a speech in which I said that we have turned a corner. So I wouldn't suggest to you that we have turned the corner But I will say we've come a long way since 03. You never hear the commanding general say, we're losing. First, let me just say that uh, we're not losing a war out here by any means. Or the war is not going well. I feel like, you know, we're making some steady progress. I think we have turned the corner. And I think also that the Taliban recognize that that corner has been turned. Are you telling me that the corner has been turned? Yes. Turn the corner. Now, looking ahead to 2018, as President Ghani said, he believes we have turned the corner. And I agree. Some lawmakers, like Senator Warren, noted this. General Miller, we supposedly turned the corner so many times that it seems now we're going in circles. Since the start of the war, that has been the official line from the government. But now, Craig has obtained a collection of secret recordings and documents that completely unravels that official narrative. My assessments weren't good. It wasn't things are going well. Never. Ever. We are participating in conflict. We are not really here to win. Thousands of pages, documents, and recordings like these, laying out in private what was never said in public. They really do bring to mind the Pentagon Papers, which were the Defense Department's top secret history of the Vietnam War. To me, this is kind of like the Vietnam effect. After 15 years and counting in Afghanistan, I don't think we're any better organized than we were back then. In these interviews, we hear from ambassadors and generals and senior diplomats, people like Michael Flynn and Ryan Crocker and Nicholas Burns, who said this war was a mess. After 03-04, once we're fully engaged in both wars, I can't remember us ever saying, should we be there? Are we being useful? Are we succeeding? The just severity of corruption in our own system, I think, is just unbelievable. And our strategy failed, and we didn't know what we were doing. They literally used those words. While on one hand, it makes sense because people have known the war hasn't been going well, which is why we've been there for 18 years, to hear or read these people who are in charge of the war admitting how the war was screwed up 
and that what the American people were being told about the wars wasn't true. And just for context, what has been the toll of the war for the U.S. and for Afghanistan? And just how much is that at odds with what we've heard publicly about the war? It's hard to put enough superlatives into it. It started in October of 2001, just about a month after the 9-11 attacks. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. And ever since, we've had U.S. troops there and U.S. forces. And the number of people going in and out has varied. It dwindled under Obama. We will be able to remove 10,000 of our troops from Afghanistan by the end of this year. The consequences of a rapid exit are both predictable and unacceptable. It's gone back up under Trump to now about 13,000 troops. But the intensity of the war is in some ways as great as it's ever been. The number of U.S. bombings and airstrikes uh, recently is as high as it ever was during the Obama administration. The number of Afghans who are dying in the war is as high as it's ever been. We don't have precise numbers from the death toll, but certainly estimates are that the number of Afghans who have been killed are over 140,000 over the course of the war. And that would include Afghan civilians, Afghan security forces, and also Afghan opposition fighters like in the Taliban. From the United States, 2,300 U.S. troops have been killed in Afghanistan. The war is still going very strong, even if the number of U.S. troops is fewer than it once was. All told, we've spent about a trillion dollars on this war in Afghanistan for military operations, reconstruction, humanitarian aid. It's been going on so long, it's almost hard to add them all up. And these documents and recordings, where are they from and how exactly were we aware that they existed? So there's an agency called the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. The, the acronym is SIGAR. Congress set them up over a decade ago to investigate waste and fraud and audits about spending in Afghanistan. But back in 2014, they decided to do a side project. The war had been going on a while, but at that point, President Obama had said the war was winding down. Good afternoon, everybody. Today, I'd like to update the American people on the way forward in Afghanistan and how this year we will bring America's longest war to a responsible end. So they wanted to do a project that they called Lessons Learned, that if the U.S. ever found itself engaged in another war, where it had to rebuild a country that had been shattered by war, what lessons were learned from this long, drawn-out conflict in Afghanistan that they could apply to other failed states. I think Americans have learned that it's harder to end wars than it is to begin them. So they started out interviewing people who have been involved in the war. So if, if we could start actually... Um just to give you a sense, we have done, at least for our project, probably, I'd say maybe 120 interviews so far, and maybe more, actually, at this stage. They conducted and interviews if we could begin, I guess, with hundreds of people who were insiders or key figures in the Afghan war. I was appointed ambassador to NATO. I was just asked to go out and get the embassy open. I spent three years 
hunting human beings to kill them or capture them. They were looking at some particular themes like strategy, corruption, things like that. They were going to get people in their own words about what went wrong, what got screwed up. And how long did it take to actually get a hold of them? Well, it took three years. So we started asking for them. There's a little bit of a backstory. Uh, in August of 2016, we'd heard that one of the people they interviewed was Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. And at that like, time— Like the Michael Flynn. The Michael Flynn. At that time, he was—this was during the presidential campaign between Trump and Hillary Clinton. And Michael Flynn— just a couple months after he had gone up on stage at the Republican convention and said, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. We do not need a reckless president who believes she is above the law. Lock her up. That's right. Get, that's right. Lock her up. We'd heard he had given this long interview about the Afghan war. Flynn has some political baggage these days, but... But you have to understand, he was as plugged in on military intelligence as anyone in the armed forces for 15 years. He was in charge of military intelligence in Afghanistan when he served there. He was the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. We wanted to know, what did he say? So we asked this agency, the inspector general, well, we, we heard you did an interview with Flynn. It had never come out in public. We just heard about it. We'd like to get our hands on that and see what he said. And at first, the agency said, Sure, we, that shouldn't be a problem. But then it dragged out and dragged out, and they finally said no. Long story short, we had to sue them for it in federal court under the Freedom Information Act. We ultimately won. At that point, we'd asked for all their interviews because we found out there were hundreds more. And we thought, oh, well, we won in federal court. We'll, we'll get the other ones. But they still refused to give us the other ones. So we had to sue them again. <laughs> then the, the next trick they did is they withheld most of the names of the people who were interviewed, which we thought was really important. So we're still in a fight in court over identifying who all these people were, but we've been able to figure out a lot of them. So what was your reaction when you started to hear what had been discussed in these interviews? Well, the first one we got was Michael Flynn, you know, after our first lawsuit. So we had a transcript of what he said, and we had his audio recording of what he said. And I'll, and I'll draw you a picture here. So, we started the war, and strategically, we focused on where. Where did they come from? Okay, well, they came from Afghanistan. Okay, so let's go to Afghanistan. And then we, of course, we went to where, called Iraq. And it was like, okay, well, why do we go to Iraq, you know? Why? We haven't really answered why. So I'm trying to answer why in my own head. Why do they hate us? Why did they attack us? Trying to address why. To look backwards as to where. Politically, we are still arguing about why. You know, Flynn's a pretty colorful character. He's very blunt and direct, and he was harshly critical of the war. So when you look at Afghanistan... Every single measurable activity is failing. If John Campbell were to sit here today and go, Mike, it's bullshit. John Campbell at this time is a commander of U.S. forces in the war. We've built more schools. We've got more kids and, you know, we've got more cars on the road. You know, really? Flynn knew intimately well what was going on in Afghanistan. So for him to say that what the public was being told about how well the war was going was completely at odds with the reality on the ground 
for year after year. That really got our attention. And that takeaway, was that reflected in the other interviews and the other recordings that you've seen? Yes. So that's the pattern. That's the theme throughout. There's nobody in these interviews commenting about how great the war has been going. So let's dive a little bit more into the contents of some of these interviews. And I want to talk about Ryan Crocker. And what we're trying to do, if, if we can, um, is to work with um, particularly senior level officials like yourself to make sure that um, the conversation's on the record wherever and whenever possible. Does that work for you? Uh, yeah, there's not much point in doing this if it's not on the record. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so maybe I should start. Who is he and why is his point of view on the war in Afghanistan important? So Ryan Crocker is not only was he the ambassador there uh, for over a year during the Obama administration, at the height of the troop surge, when Obama was sending in tens of thousands more troops, Ryan Crocker was also the top-ranking diplomat in early 2002 after we started the war. Well, I, I was parachuted in. I was not a South Asian specialist by any means. I was just asked to go out and get the embassy open. So I had no real background in Afghanistan. We didn't have very many diplomats with a background in Afghanistan or military people or aid workers because after the Soviets invaded in 1979. On the night of the coup, the Russians moved a large force of armored vehicles out to the president's isolated palace. The Afghan defenders and the Russian attackers fought bitterly for almost four hours. We had to pull out our presence for the large part in Afghanistan. So from 1979 until 2001, in terms of United States or American knowledge of what was going on in Afghanistan, those were really the dark ages. Then suddenly after 9-11 and after we started bombing Afghanistan in October 2001, there is a real need to find people who can not only serve there, but who can get up to speed really quickly. So most of the people who went in, like Crocker, one of the first diplomats, essentially parachuted in to this shattered country. What did you find when you when you arrived? Absolute devastation. Coming into the city, driving around the city for the first time, um, and driving through mile after mile of uh, basically lifeless mud. Nothing worked. There was no plumbing. The roads were bombed. There was very little that was intact. No military, no police, no civil service, no functioning society. So the enormity of the task uh, hit me. And what did he say about how the U.S. was doing in terms of trying to help build back some of Kabul and some of Afghanistan? Well, there was a real debate going on in the Bush administration at that point. Do we get involved in nation building in, in Afghanistan or do we leave that to other countries or the United Nations? Well, at that point, we didn't know what the task was, what the U.S. was there to do. There was significant differences in view in Washington as to whether we should embark on a long-term nation-building effort or whether we wanted to keep our role and our agenda very minimal. When George W. Bush had run for president in 2000 against Al Gore, one of his campaign themes was, I don't think our troops ought to be used for what's called nation-building. I think our, na our troops ought to be used to fight and win war. I think our troops ought to be used to, to help overthrow a dictator. 
that's in our when it's in our best interests. They had seen what the Clinton administration had tried to do in Somalia and Haiti. Somalia started off as a humanitarian mission and then changed into a nation-building mission, and that's where the mission went wrong. And same with Haiti, I wouldn't have supported either. But I'm going to be judicious as to how to use the military. It needs to be in our vital interest, the mission needs to be clear, and the exit strategy obvious. So sure enough, right after Bush gets elected, he's faced with his choice now. What do I do in Afghanistan? They toppled the Taliban. They chased al-Qaeda away. What responsibility do we have to rebuild Afghanistan? And this was a debate that Crocker talks about. We sure saw Rumsfeld at work saying, minimal, minimal, minimal. Our job is about killing bad guys. So we will have killed the bad guys. Who cares what happens next? That's their problem. And if in a decade and a half we have to go in and kill more bad guys, we can do that too. But we're not going to get involved in nation building. So Ryan Crocker says they were slow to come to that realization, that they needed to take a key role in the reconstruction. But that lack of initial widespread agreement about what exactly their role was in reconstruction, how did that become apparent on the ground in Afghanistan? Well, for one, they just we, all of a sudden we had U.S. troops there and diplomats, and they had to function. You know, they had to try and get an embassy up and operating. You know, really, they were left with a shell of a building that they had occupied 20-some years before. How did they get from one part of the country to the other? There, there's no highways. There's old goat paths and dirt roads. Yeah, having to ford, you know, a, a river because the bridge was out, it, it was a very sobering experience that there was almost literally nothing there. How do they get this country to, you can fly in and fly out. That took a long time. Just to do anything in terms of military operations, they needed to get some basic infrastructure up and going. You mentioned that one theme that came up in many of these interviews is the fact that people were really concerned about the corruption that they saw. Was that something that that Crocker talked about during his interview? Yes, Crocker was a key player in trying to determine how to respond to that, particularly during his second stint there in the U.S. Embassy in Kabul during the Obama administration. By then, the levels of corruption had gotten very, very bad in Afghanistan. You've got a very significant military presence. Uh, It requires a whole lot of stuff. You have to remember, at that point, we're pumping, the United States is pumping in billions and billions of dollars a year into Afghanistan, whether it's direct aid, paying for their troops and police, paying to rebuild roads. You just cannot put those amounts of money into a very fragile state and society um, and not have it fuel corruption. So it, it really ran the gamut, the corruption. It could be Afghan police having checkpoints on the road demanding money for someone to pass, whether you're an Afghan farmer or somebody going to school. But it also is very high-level corruption in terms of one of the biggest banks in Afghanistan, Kabul Bank, went belly up. Panicked customers have been pulling their savings out of Kabul Bank as fast as they can. You have to understand Afghanistan, when we invaded, they didn't have banks. They just had money exchanges, hawalas, which are the Islamic financial system of these money transfers. But they build up a bank. And the brother of Hamid Karzai, Hamid Karzai is the president of Afghanistan, one of his brothers helped run this bank, Kabul Bank. It was the biggest private bank in the country. This bank also was a repository, directly or indirectly, of most of the U.S. and international aid. 
all this money to a large degree was getting funneled through Cabo Blanc. And it became apparent in 2010 that Cabo Bank all of a sudden was on the verge of collapse, that there were rumors flying that they didn't have enough money to cover their loans. Because it was so mismanaged and because it was, people it, were theoretically taking money out of the yeah, business I, for their well, own Well, it was mismanaged doesn't even cover it, <laughs> that this is people giving loans to themselves, millions and millions and millions of dollars in loans and never having to pay them back. So mm-hmm. I think the investigators who were looking into it would say it was more than mismanagement. It was outright theft and fraud to such a degree that it was run like a, a Ponzi scheme. Former President Hamid Karzai, his brother Mahmoud Karzai, he's denied any criminal or personal wrongdoing, although, of course, he acknowledges, given that the bank almost melted down, that there were a number of very serious management issues at the bank. So this was the kind of thing that Ryan Crocker was looking at and saying that... As, as the chief U.S. diplomat in Afghanistan, he's confronted with this problem. Do we hold anyone accountable? You know, by the time I had left, I mean, it was, it was fairly clear to me that given the entrenched nature of corruption and the extent to which the establishment, including Karzai's own family famously, as, as well as Fahim uh, Khan, was highly unlikely that steps would be taken to bring people to account. So Ryan Crocker says essentially, though, his feeling was that the corruption was so bad and so ingrained in the government and the Afghan elite that there, was, there wasn't much he or the United States could do about it. The endemic and deeply rooted nature of corruption, whether it's Cobble Bank or, or anything else, uh, is now beyond um, uh, the ability of uh, even a, a determined Afghan president uh, uh, to correct this was an unresolved problem that persists to this day, really. And Crocker's argument is, yes, they were corrupt. It was a mess. But by that point, it had become so ingrained, I don't think there was realistically much we could do about it. Now, a lot of other people disagree with him on that. What are some of the other examples of corruption that Crocker noticed and was trying to deal with? Well, one person he mentioned and came up in his recording was a notorious Afghan warlord called uh, Mohammed Qasim Fahim Khan. He was a Tajik warlord who was one of our allies when we invaded Afghanistan in 2001. You have to remember when we started bombing the country in 2001, our allies were warlords for the most part, people who were opposed to the Taliban, and they were on our side only because they opposed the Taliban and al-Qaeda. But he was also a pretty rough figure in Afghanistan. This is a guy who had his own militia and suddenly found himself as the defense minister and vice president of Afghanistan. He's not a clean figure known for good government. This is a guy known for being pretty rough on his enemies. Crocker had talked about first meeting Fahim Khan. Yeah, I met... uh... Uh, Fahim Khan, my first time out. Uh, and at that point, he knew Fahim Khan was this militia leader. He was a warlord from the northern part of Afghanistan. He was going to be in charge of the Afghanistan Defense Ministry. Not surprisingly, the early 2002, the charters got all messed up. You had people stranded at the airports and bitterly cold temperatures for hours, if not days. There was a minister of civil aviation who was supposed to be in charge of all of this. And, um, 
one night, John McCall, the British force commander, and I were meeting with Karzai fairly late, and uh, Fahim Khan walked into the room. He was, he was giggling, and he proceeded to relate to us that a mob had gotten out of control at the airport and had murdered the Minister of Civil Aviation. And he giggled while he related this. Much later, it uh, emerged, I don't know if it was ever verified or not, it emerged that Fien Khan himself had had the minister killed. But I certainly came out of those opening months with the feeling that even by Afghan standards, I was in the presence of a totally evil person. The substance of this is that the United States had to work very, very closely with Fahim Khan for many years. He died in 2015, I believe it was. And later in his recording, Crocker is almost joking with the interviewer. You know, the good thing about Fahim Khan is that he is dead. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I, I check about every other day, and as far as I know, he's still dead. <laughs> but again, the perspective isn't just that he was this scary, evil character, but this is one of our closest allies in Afghanistan. You know, the question in the war for them is, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And in these interviews, the documents and recordings, people repeatedly say this. They say, I couldn't tell who the good guys were or the bad guys. The troops would go over and say, show me where the bad guys are so I could fight them. And this was unclear. A lot of times the bad guys were on our side. That is the question, the debate that's still going on to this day and is reflected in these interviews and documents and recordings that there is real disagreement with among U.S. officials as to where to draw that line. Do we just take them aside and have a stern talking to and tell them not to do it again? Do we demand they be kicked out of government? Do we arrest them? Like Michael Flynn, for instance, had a very different perspective from Crocker on what to do about Fahim Khan. But I mean, that would have meant confronting people like Fahim and Bismillah Khan. Yeah, that's right. And when that when that happened, you, you may remember this, right? You know, there was an attempt to confront uh, Fahim's crew. Yeah. Gr- group of Air Force generals. Right. Um, and I think you may remember how that turned out. I was in his office. And? And it was not pretty. And, and you know, but you know what? Arrest the guy. This is the combat zone. Mm-hmm. So Flynn was one of those people who was saying that he felt the U.S. should have been more aggressive in trying to keep people in line or to dole out punishments to people who they felt were doing doing bad things, being corrupt. Flynn would say, yes, we didn't hold people accountable enough high up in the Afghan government. I mean, there's a lot of guys that should have been arrested. You know, you got to have accountability. And so if that, if that that's part of the problem of instilling confidence in a population that they see it happening right in front of their eyes. We see it happening. And, and we, we don't uh, look the other way. We actually enable it. Okay? I'll give you a good story of, a, of probably one of the wealthiest people in Afghanistan today. He started out as a young interpreter. Flynn tells a story of an interpreter who was working with U.S. military. He also calls him a terp for short. Talk about lack of accountability. Mm-hmm. So the military, this commander is using this turp, and commander says, I need this to this guy he's talking to, who's an Afghan, doesn't understand anything, tells the turp. You know, and the guy says, 
He says, I'll buy it from you. And the Turk says, okay, he wants to buy it from you. Are you willing to sell it? He says, yes, this is what I'll sell it for. And he says, well, how much does he want to sell it to me for? And the Turk says, talk to the guy. The guy says, a couple hundred dollars. Turp says, 20000 So he says, okay, no problem. Gives the guy a couple hundred bucks, and the Turk takes the rest of it. You have to remember that the U.S. military and the State Department and mostly international aid organizations, they couldn't speak the two languages of Afghanistan. The two national languages are Dari and Pashto. Even today, we're still in Afghanistan. You, find, you go tell me how many, how many actual U.S. members of our military, U.S. members of the military, or policy, any, any people from the state that actually speak Dari or Pashto, it's a handful. So that's a shame. That's a policy decision. So we're really dependent on translators and interpreters to help us communicate, but also figure out the lay of the land. This was a common scene you'd see as, as a reporter there, I would see this happen, where the U.S. military would be dependent on an interpreter and sort of operate on the assumption that the interpreter is seeing their best interests, when in fact, Flynn is saying that the interpreter is jacking up the price unbeknownst to the Americans. He keeps doing that and keeps doing it and keeps doing it. And the money's more and more. And he's cutting deals. Everybody loves this interpreter. Everybody thinks the world of him. He would see these interpreters become multimillionaires over time. Probably one of the wealthiest people in Afghanistan today. He owns a couple of banks. He owns a rental, an SUV service. He started out as a young interpreter. He says this was clear this was going on, but again, the United States just kind of let it happen instead of trying to crack down on it. So I just, I just think that, you know, how many others are, of him are there? Tons, probably. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, there's, there's probably hundreds. Yeah of those types of individuals who benefited because, frankly, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We're not exactly sure who the interpreter is that General Flynn is referring to. If he identified the person in his interview with Sigar, that section was redacted by the inspector general for privacy reasons. So then if all of this stuff was happening on the ground in Afghanistan... Why couldn't U.S. officials be more public about that? And what did Michael Flynn say about the fact that the state of things on the ground was pretty bad, and yet we were hearing this message of things are improving, Afghanistan is getting better with every passing day? Well, if they admit things are screwed up, then there would be public pressure to pull out or end the war. Nobody wanted to admit defeat. And so this was a problem you saw in Vietnam, too. This isn't the first time in a war this has happened. This is, really has strong echoes of what happened during the Vietnam War, where the military commanders or presidents or secretaries of state would say, well, it's a tough road. There's still fighting going on, but we're making progress. We're making progress, you know, because they don't want people to think that people were dying in vain or that we're sending more troops or money to Afghanistan if it's a wasted cause. Commanders and policymakers on the spectrum of news, they want to be always good news. Operational commanders and State Department policymakers or Department of Defense policymakers, they are going to be inherently rosy in their assessments and be unaccepting of hard-hitting intelligence. And 
yet Flynn is saying that it was clear on the ground that we were losing, we were not winning, that despite what the American people were being told publicly, things were not going well. After, I think, 2006, for me, it was irrelevant because we, we, we were just killing so many people and it wasn't making any difference at all. It's hard for a military commander to admit things aren't going well, to say we screwed up or we made a mistake or our strategy was flawed. None of them are geared to say that and nobody would admit the reality of what was going on. And that's what's so striking about what Michael Flynn and other people say in these recordings and interviews They say it was apparent we were losing. It was apparent things weren't going well. And yet in public, people in the government kept telling the American people things were were moving forward, we were making progress. And, you know, that's a pretty damning comment, but we hear it time and time and time again in these interviews. If If you go back and you look at the mission statement for every battalion and every brigade from the beginning of the war, they essentially are all the same. You know, it's... You know, defeat and destroy the enemy, protect the population. So they all went in every, you know, whatever their rotation was for a year, nine months, six months, whatever their rotation was. They all went in and they and they were given that mission. They accepted that mission. They executed that mission. And then they all said when they left. They accomplished that mission. Every single commander. Not one commander is going to leave Afghanistan or Iraq or any place. Not one is going to leave and go, you know what? We didn't accomplish our mission. Okay? So if the next guy that shows up finds it screwed up, that, wow, man, we just we did our right seat ride. We had a great right seat ride. We did our week long, you know, did our high fives. We're now in there. They do their mission analysis once they get on the ground. And then they come back and they go, man, this is really bad. But yet the last battalion and the last regiment that you just replaced, they said they accomplished their mission. They got all these wonderful stats about what they did. But the next guy that shows up, and I'm telling you, this is from 2002 until today. Okay? So somewhere along our our system, and this includes the State Department, ambassadors, you know, local, down at the, uh, you know, down at the local level. Everybody did a great job. We're all doing a great job. Really? So if we're doing such a great job, why, why does it feel like we've, we're losing? So we've talked in a lot of depth about two of these interviews with Ryan Crocker and with Michael Flynn. But there are many more interviews than just these two, right? That's right. So the Lessons Learned program had interviewed uh, over 600 people who were involved in the war. The Post was able to obtain more than 400 of them under the Freedom Information Act. So we have a pretty good body of work. I mean, 400 interviews of people involved in the war, you get a, a real variety of voices and people who were involved in the beginning, back in 2001, up till people who were there as recently as 2018. And there's really nothing that we know of like that, where so many people were interviewed about their experiences in the war. And that's really the the power, I think, of these notes and interviews, is you can really get a synthesis about many different issues, many different lessons, many different mistakes and failures in the war, and the patterns really come out. 
And in addition to some of the things that we've talked about, like corruption or the way that, that what was happening on the ground was kind of spun in terms of how it was communicated back here, what were some of the other themes that came up in some of the other interviews that you've reviewed? Yeah, so some of the other major themes running through these interviews off the top, one was that the strategy was incoherent, both through the Bush administration and Obama administration. We didn't know who the enemy was. People involved in the war said we didn't know why, who we were fighting or why. Another running theme, a big problem, is the failure to develop Afghan security forces, a national army or police that's capable of defending the country. And lastly, a big theme running through the documents is the problem of opium production in Afghanistan, which has skyrocketed since we invaded, and the U.S. has never figured out a policy or an approach that's effective in curtailing opium production. So have any of these interviews or reports seen the light of day before us publishing it now? The interview documents themselves, the transcripts, the notes, this is the first time that they've seen the light of the day. What has happened in some of the public reports, the lessons learned reports that SIGAR has published, they quote people selectively here and there. But the quotations that we uncovered in the interviews about you know, these plaintive frustrations, why are we there, this war made no sense, this was a mistake, none of those quotations, none of that criticism surfaced in any of the public reports the inspector general did. They kept all that material under wraps. So I'm curious, the fact that you spent three years basically fighting to get access to these documents, have you gone back and asked the folks who originally came up with this project and brought together these interviews, what they think about the fact that now they are being brought to light? Yes. So I won't lie to you. It's been enormously frustrating that it took three years. I mean, that's three years of war, billions of more dollars, many more people dying. And yet we were unable until now to bring to light a lot of these criticisms, severe criticisms from people inside the government who are fighting the war. And actually, I did just recently go back and interview the special inspector general himself, a gentleman named John Sopko. Let's see what my office looks like now. <laughs> and I did ask him those questions. I said, you know, your job, your job as an inspector general is to hold the government accountable. You're an independent agency that reports to Congress. But why, I still don't understand why your office, which is supposed to hold people accountable in yeah. Afghanistan, right? That's your whole mission. Why wouldn't it, why would it sit on this stuff? We didn't sit on it. I mean, before we, we, we came up with a list of issues that people told us to look at, this was not high on the priority when we finally got our program up and running. But you have senior officials, four-star generals, ambassadors, senior White House officials telling your staff on the record we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have a strategy. If there is a definition of mission creep, it's Afghanistan. I think a lot of that comes out in the Lessons Learned Report. It's a theme in probably every audit and every report we issue. So did you ask the inspector general why it is that the reports that they put out were pretty watered down and that they essentially didn't put in or didn't publicize some of the most 
egregious and some of the most important parts of what they learned? I did. I wanted to know. I read off a number of quotations from people that were interviewed by his staff. If I just read some of the ones I, a few excerpts that I was shocked at, I mean, there was, we didn't know what we were doing. What were we trying to do here? We didn't have... As to the first question, did we know what we were doing? I think the answer is no. I tried to get someone to define for me what winning meant, even before I went over, and nobody could. You know, and I could keep going through more and more of these, but to me it's pretty astounding. These are the people in charge of the war, essentially saying it was a disaster, and they knew it. But I don't see any of these comments in your lessons learned reports. Why, and, why didn't you include those? And, and, and that is sort of the limitation of where we go. See, as an inspector general, I don't do policy. What all you quoted were people talking about a bad policy. We shouldn't have been there or we shouldn't have expanded. And that's the limitation where I'm talking about. As an inspector general, I do process. You tell me what the policy is. You being the government, the Congress, the president. This is a program. This is our policy. We're in Afghanistan to de- get the, t- the Taliban out or the terrorists out and to develop a government that will keep them out. I, as an IG, don't question the policy. Oh, come on. I mean, I read you have no. a whole report on corruption, on narcotics. Yeah, That's like, all It's all process. It's no, process. no, no, no. But you, well, you, 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 you're, you're, and I don't see you as the kind of guy who shies away from stuff. No, when you I, see things I, I really don't. And if, if you look at my testimony and the testimony of NEIG, we don't do the policy. You tell us what the policy is, we do the process. We can raise questions. You're not going to make that policy objective. If you don't do so the following things. So why did your staff interview all these people I just quoted? That's the whole fundamental reason questioning why the well, United States is there. How could you let that drop? Well, well, we didn't let it drop. I mean, the stuff is available. We're still producing these reports. We had to so. sue you twice to get our hands on it. Wait, you did what? We had to sue your office twice under FOIA to get our hands on these documents. Well... You can't say they're out there. I don't want to go into the the, the lawsuit that's still pending, but I think you did get a lot of the documents, if not majority, 90% of them. So I think we were firm believers in openness and transparency, but we got to follow the law. Frankly, this agency, the inspector general, I, I think they bit off more than they could chew. I think they did go in with the idea of trying to learn mistakes from the war, Part of it, you have to remember the timing. When they started this project in 2014, everybody thought the war was coming to an end. That didn't happen. And this office was supposed to go out of business. There wasn't supposed to be a war anymore. But the war has kept going. So suddenly, rather than have it just look into the past, this is very much a present-day problem. Why, Why are we still there? Why are we in the war? And that raises all sorts of sensitive issues for people still in government. You didn't think you'd still be doing... Lessons. Lessons learned no, five years I, later. Yeah, Is yeah, that right? No, you're absolutely correct. I, I didn't think we would still be doing it. I think there was a need to do it. And uh, because I, I believe what Alan and Crocker and what everybody else, all the, the smart people in town told us is that this is what the future is going to look like. The next time we do this, whatever the country is, you name the hot spot. It's going to be in a country where there's a problem of rule of law. It's going to be a country that's facing an active insurgency. 
maybe a lot of terrorist activity. It's going to have a corruption problem. It's probably going to have a narcotics problem. All of the problems we've identified, they said this is the future. So somebody should try to learn the lessons from that. So if the original concept of conducting all of these incredibly honest interviews was to make something that was essentially lessons learned, the fact that they haven't been made public, the fact that there has been a huge fight to get them out into the world for people to be able to read and understand what's in them, do you feel like lessons are actually being learned? No, I think this is an illustration of why they weren't, and that's why we're still there in Afghanistan with no clear plan for getting out, although the Trump administration is trying to negotiate a peace deal with the Taliban. But from the war objectives, those lessons are apparent what the problems were, but in terms of learning a lesson and how to avoid them in the future and come up with a new strategy, or especially if we ever get involved in another war, uh, I think those lessons still have not been learned. People are aware of the problems in Congress, in the, the government, but there again, there has never really been a public reckoning about it. There hasn't been a public conversation. There hasn't been a public accounting of what went wrong and why, and certainly not to hold individual officials uh, responsible for any of that. Craig Whitlock is an investigative reporter for The Post. What you've just heard is a fraction of the Post reporting on the Afghanistan papers. There is much more, stories focusing on corruption, the war on opium production, the failure to train Afghan forces. There are also copies of internal memos and transcripts of interviews with hundreds of individuals involved in the war. To find a link to all of that, go to postreports.com. That's it for this special episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.